You are listening to Why Can't We Have It All, a podcast focused on exploring the missing pieces in our healthcare system. This podcast is sponsored by Bowtie Medical, an innovative healthcare company that offers integrated virtual healthcare designed to keep you in control of your health and what you spend on it while lowering the cost of healthcare for you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Why Can't We Have It All? I'm your host, Dr. Danish Gary. I'm delighted today to have two uh, distinguished guests with me, my co-host, Bernard Evanquist, who is a first-year medical student at Case Western Reserve University, and Aditi Deshmukh, who is a master in public health, and she will go to, she will start her medical school next, next year. Uh, thank you for being with me uh, today, uh, Bernard and Aditi. Thank you thank so you. much. It's uh, it's great to be here. Um, I know that uh, last episode we explored some very important issues within the healthcare system, and I think it's a fantastic opportunity to be here again to discuss uh, these same issues with a little bit of uh, expansion. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a great honor to be here. It's wonderful to explore the concept with two of the brightest and freshest minds that I know in, the, in this area. This episode is a direct uh, continuation of our last show where we discussed how COVID-19 uh, pandemic exposed a truly gaping hole in our healthcare system. So to quickly recap, for those of you who don't have time or don't have the patience to listen, um, uh, we developed into the last episode, technological and scientific development over the past 120 years or so have created two systems to manage uh, the health needs of our population in the United States. On one end is public health departments which are funded and facilitated by our county systems and are paid through the taxes. And on the other end is the hospital-based sick care system uh, that we call it, and uh, erroneously we have named them as the healthcare system, that are paid uh, mostly by employers for about 200 million Americans or government-sponsored insurance, Medicare and Medicaid. By the emergence of COVID-19, the largest health crisis of the past century, it exposed the significant gap between these two systems, uh, between their efforts to take care of the health need of our society. On one hand, the public health system job description. Aditi, what is the job description of public health? Well, according to the CDC, it is to collect information on potential outbreaks to help people from becoming ill. As we are approaching the one-year mark of the pandemic, imposed restrictions, undesirable rates of transmission and mortality, we start to understand that these public health departments were unable to fulfill their job when it mattered most. They were unable to prevent or reduce mortality rates from COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic really highlighted failures in our infrastructure within the public health systems. Not to be harsh on the public health, I would say that, you know, with the funding that received $100 per capita, really they did their best. Uh, But the fact of matter is they were not prepared and they were not equipped to deal with the health crisis of this magnitude. At the same time, the pandemic also shined a harsh light on the reality of the hospital-based system in every neighborhood. 
Uh, as we are here in Northeast Ohio, we have large four major health systems. We've discussed this in the past that they draw about 14, 15 billion dollar a year revenue. But these hospitals were really able to only focus on the sick care. B Bernard, you were in the midst of that uh, with, uh, with this hospital system. Do you think that the system uh, uh, could serve our needs during this crisis? Do I think the system could serve our needs? I think in a perfect world, that would be the job description of the so-called healthcare system. However, as you mentioned, uh, it's kind of a misnomer. We expect them to act as a healthcare system, this hospital-centered medical system. However, uh, the reality of it is that, as you mentioned, uh, the hospital-centered healthcare system really kicks in after a person gets sick. So it's not really for this system a manner of a matter of protecting health as long as people are healthy, but rather uh, treating people who are sick. Um, these are for a variety of reasons, but really, if we were to consider the pandemic, that kind of shined a harsh light of reality that this hospital-based system is really fundamentally, in terms of training, in terms of financial incentives, it's truly a sick care system dedicated and focused solely on really taking care of those who are already sick. It's not a matter of keeping people healthy. Um, if we were to come up with a really useful analogy, I would say that they're kind of an ultimate afterthought or a band-aid. And, you know, really they only provide care after the wound has been inflicted. As I said, this is a, for, I would think, two primary reasons. One, medical training. Um, doctors are kind of trained to see people through a diagnosis and results in treatment. As you said, after they have cheap complaints. After right? the, the prerequisite for even talking to a doctor or a medical professional is a chief complaint. Something has to go wrong. And the second primary reason, I would say, and that's something, this is a topic we've explored past in this, uh, in this podcast. The financial incentives are structured such that uh, the medical system, this hospital-centered medical system, benefits if more people are sick. I was surprised to hear a comment by the CEO of one of these systems in which he was laying out the business plans he had for taking care of very sick patients with COVID uh, as a new revenue opportunity in the post-COVID era, where most people uh, now wish not to become sick with this disease. So it is, I think, uh, reasonable without being uh, too harsh that these uh, elements of the health system have failed to protect us on issues such as you know, extensive testing we needed during the surges in the pandemic, uh, or, uh, and now they're unable to fulfill the needs for mass vaccinations. Currently, only about one-third to one-half of the available vaccines have been distributed to people. Uh, so despite being the most expensive healthcare system in the world, our system has failed to eliminate or reduce chronic condition uh, that expose people to as major risk factors for COVID morbidity and mortality. So if we go back over the past 67 years, say what, would, what was the number one job of the healthcare system was to create a healthy population. So if a COVID-like pandemic hits, you know, they won't die from it. But even they failed in that primary job. 
Whereas over the past century, and I know you are well familiar with this science as uh, your education uh, indicates, uh, we have gained significant insight and scientific uh, knowledge about the pathophysiology of the chronic conditions, issues such as cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, uh, all those conditions that played a major role as a comorbid factor during the COVID. Um, so it is not the lack of information. I think we have as much information about how to prevent these diseases as we have information how to uh, treat them. What are your thoughts, guys? So I, I agree. I definitely agree that there is an overwhelming amount of information, both on prevention and treatment of these diseases. As we discussed in the last podcast, the top three causes of death are, well, top two causes of death are heart disease and cancer. The third one would be medical harms. Certainly all of these, these causes of death, causes of mortality, are pertinent in this conversation because Whereas we have a lot of scientific information of how to prevent heart disease, we need to manage cholesterol, we need to manage any predisposition to diabetes or hyperglycemia should diabetes have already occurred. We need to look at the numbers, the lipids, calcium phosphate scoring, everything like that. Um, we know a lot about preventing heart disease. In the same manner, we have specialists, cardiologists, that know an abundance of information on how to treat heart disease once it already occurs. That's a sick care system. The same thing exists for cancer in terms of prevention. As we discussed in the last podcast, we know that maintaining a healthy weight, exercising frequently, um, avoiding too much sunlight, having a healthy diet, these things help prevent the onset of cancer, being vaccinated against specific STIs. Uh, we also have specialists in the sick care system, oncologists, radio oncologists that um, have an abundance of information on how to treat cancer once it begins. So as you said, we have an abundance of information on how to prevent things. We also have an abundance of information on how to treat things. And this kind of gives us a dilemma, which route should we prefer? Should we prefer treatment or should we prefer, prefer prevention? Well, I think the third leading cause of death becomes pertinent in this discussion because we were to remember the third leading cause of death, that's medical errors. Um, the act of medical treatment in general always has some associated risk. If you consider any medication, there is always a risk of some side effect, some adverse effect that could be predictable or it could be completely idiopathic. And by that, I mean completely specific to the individual. And in that case, it's completely unpredictable. So there is always a risk of some side effect, some uh, risk of no morbidity or mortality associated with medical treatment. If you consider uh, surgical procedures, the risk is often even greater. There's always a risk of, for example, surgical site infections or some adverse event occurring as a result of the surgery. And really, there is a specific term for this because certainly this isn't an original idea. And a lot of people have talked about it such that there's a word for it. And that word is called iatrogenicity. It's the act of, or the, the quality of medical care having an inherent risk of causing harm to the patient just by the act of caring for them. And you know, this paradox, it's, it's as I discussed in our previous podcast, I and other medical students, we go into this profession 
um, wanting to help people live healthier, more meaningful lives in the way that they deem meaningful. However, treatment itself is dangerous. Right. You're correct. And uh, because uh, as old as uh, I am, I remember actually the waves of some of these uh, complications uh, that <coughs> have affected our population. Uh, we call them the cripples. There are cardiac cripples, uh, patients who underwent multiple cardiac surgeries or a stent placement, back cripples, uh, people who underwent unnecessary back surgeries, uh, prostate cripples, uh, patients who underwent unnecessary prostate surgeries. Recently, we have vaginal cripples, you know, all the mesh uh, we put into uh, people with the, with the prolapse. And this has reached actually to a level uh, that has uh, created some awareness at the level of the providers. Uh, JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, has published a series called Less is More to document scientific review of reviews of unnecessary and ineffective medical cares. And following that, the majority of the subspecialities uh, through their professional societies have formed a coalition called Choose Wisely to encourage their members and patients to consider the harms of medical treatments before opting uh, for those procedures. Now let's redirect our attention to the public health implications of the topic. I'm just setting up the thing to, for me to ask you, Aditi. There is abundant information about the risk regarding the genetics to environmental to lifestyle that are associated with these chronic conditions from head to toe. If I quiz Bernard, you know, he will tell you all the learnings he's had in the medical school that you're going to have next year, how you could uh, prevent the risk factors for dementia, for cardiovascular diseases. He named a bunch of them. Uh, obesity, diabetes, kidney stone, gastrointestinal issues, and, and so forth. Uh, so, so it seems that we, there is no shortage of information. Uh, so uh, with your uh, public health uh, wisdom, uh, where do you think we should take this amount of information we have? So I certainly would like to kind of premise this by saying that there's a strong structural gap between the two systems of prevention and recovery and treatment. If you start looking at prevention in, in the form of public health initiatives, many of times there's no link when it comes to what they're preventing essentially. Our hospital, or it's in this case the sick care system, are ultimately working towards promoting diagnosis and treatments whereas there's no link between the forms of prevention that the public health departments are working for. Um, ultimately, you're having this huge gap of goal alignment when it comes to what the public health departments are doing and what the sick care system is doing. So when we start gathering this information, you have abundance of information, like you mentioned, in regards to both prevention and also um, treatment. But unfortunately, there's a big disconnect in terms of what public health departments do with that information and ultimately what healthcare providers do with that information. The same information as a fact is either taken as a history when you think about it in a medical visit or it's taken as a statistic or an information for public health to work on. Now, I personally feel that there needs to be some sort of bridge between these two systems or structures where when you have someone being a, with chronic conditions or when you have someone who's a risk factor for let's say diabetes or cancer, 
you need to have something that involves both the public health initiatives in, in cognition with the healthcare department, um, healthcare systems. Ultimately, there's nothing that kind of connects the two. And as a result, the person that has those risk factor for diabetes, they may be working towards helping prevent those conditions, but their doctor may not even be aware that they have um, those resources or those um, accessibilities. So uh, that is very helpful, Aditi. Thank you. The, um, the concept to go, goes to me, and I try to solve this, uh, answer this in my own mind, that the information we have now at the individual level, uh, that we know, okay, I'm going to check your cholesterol, and if it's high, I know that's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Uh, women get pap smear, you get mammography, men get you know, PSA checking, and so forth. But uh, I think the other industries, in addition to uh, healthcare, they have gone through this risk management at the system level. It's not just limited to individuals knowing that information. Um, and I'm sure there are plenty of examples of that. A simple example comes to my mind is the risk of fire in the buildings. As we evolve from being a caveman, we learn that the risk of fire exists there, right? If we are building the structures with wood or other uh, material that uh, could catch fire. And now in the westernized societies, the risk management of the fire is a part of our living. Can you guys take this as an example and play with this to see how, whether that would, could play a role for us as a model for uh, covering this gap that you were describing? So I think this idea of a fire or a fire hazard, that's actually a really telling analogy because it seems to be this, this ever-present danger that's as long as you live in a building or operate electronics, it's always a danger that it can occur. Um, and when you think about a fire, there are these upstream risks, things that happen before the events of a fire that can almost be prevented. Um, and we've kind of learned to recognize those. Even as children, we've gone through fire drills. We understand what causes fire, how fire spreads. Um, and there are also downstream factors, such as the consequences of a fire. Well, you're going to have to pay for an entirely new building. You're going to have to lose a lot of valuables. And I think because of this ever-present danger of a fire. Of Which is very similar to ever-present danger of health, yes. right? We all are exposed to becoming obese or having cardiovascular disease. Yeah, absolutely. And because of these, uh, the ever-present danger of a fire, uh, over time, we've kind of evolved to be able to, in a more sophisticated manner, handle that risk. You think of uh, when we first discovered fire as cavemen, well, should the fire spread, we wouldn't really have too sophisticated of techniques. But then we started to learn uh, practices that were taught as children, things like blowing out candles, checking to turn off the stove after cooking, um, keeping batteries up to date and smoke detectors so we know when a fire starts. And as a result, these, these kind of practice, practices became part of routine, uh, everyday life. And eventually, as we kind of evolved as a civilization, we instituted things like firemen who were experts at preventing fires and checking out uh, to see if, if there is any substantial risk of a fire hazard in a place. And eventually, we codified all those best practices to prevent fire 
in, in, into a regulation that ev all people must follow. And in this manner, we see this ever-present hazard of fire and the detrimental effects of it. And we've built up a way to minimize the risk of that. That is a very nice explanation. Diti, um, uh, take this to a the level of the public health for us. Uh, so uh, Bernard explained that we've taken an ever-present risk of fire. We have basically modified our behavior. We have included in our lifestyle, daily life, some behavioral modifications. And that has escalated to some level of regulations. You cannot build a building without a fire permit now, right? Sure, certainly. Um, the fire example is actually a prime um, analogy for something that we can describe as like risk management practices. If you can, um, the way I, we could like to turn this is using the Bowtie Risk Management Model. It's an actual model that was used in the risk management industry for decades. Um, if we go with our analogy, just imagine a bow tie. Um, in the center, you have the knot, which is ultimately the symbol of the risk event or the factor, um, in this case, our fire. On either side, there's two wings of the ribbon, which is the left wing is a good analogy that represents causes or factors that lead up to the event. Um, in, in our fire example, it would be, for example, lighting a candle or finding different factors that would cause fires in terms of risk behaviors that would in, uh, ignite a fire. On the right side is the aftermath or the consequences after the result has happened or the event has, co um, uh, the event has covered. Essentially what you're doing on the right side is essentially what you're doing on the right side is reducing your risk or consequences and loss aftermath or after the actual risk event has occurred. Now, if we were to translate this model into the public health platform or into a health event, imagine the bow tie knot being the health risk factor or the actual medical disease that occurs at the point. Public health interventions would be involved mo mostly on the left side, which would be working towards the causes of the disease. When you talk about public health interventions, you're gonna be using the left side of that model to help display causes and ultimately factors that lead up to the event. You will, be, you will be balancing our different potential threats and opportunities to optimize our prevention strategies to ultimately prevent that event from happening. However, on the right side in our health sphere, we're talking about our hospital systems or sick care systems, those systems are actually designed to weigh out consequences after the event has occurred. The mindset or strategy when looking at risk mitigation techniques aftermath are more focused on re recovery or prevention of loss. The problem that arises is there's a clear disalignment between the goals of these two systems. One system, the public health side, is working towards a preventive risk management strategy. However, the healthcare system, or the sick care system, rather, is working towards a more reactive prevention strategy. The misalignment between these two is ultimately is what's resulting in the event inefficiencies within our healthcare system. If we go back to our fire example, the reason for the success of that fire uh, risk mitigation strategies is we have alignment of goals that go all the way up into structural impact. 
our structural systems, our governments, um, internal schools, and firefighting departments are all aligned when it comes to risk management. For example, if we talk about the fire strategy, firefighters that help minimize loss after during a fire or after a fire has broken out, those same people are involved in training children, schools, and community members on how to help manage or prevent fire from happening. They are involved in training within the schools and within communities to help initiate the mentality of preventive risk management while on site during a fire, they're involved in reactive risk management. This alignment of strategy is ultimately what helps minimize loss and help promote well-being. Uh, that was an uh, elegant way of describing uh, where this potential gap exists, uh, DT. Uh, going back to the kind of taking a, a risk such as fire and creating structures around how to mitigate that risk uh, could uh, play a, as an example for us on how to handle the health risk examples. As we have discussed on one side of the spectrum is the public health who look at the uh, public level of uh, resources where they can uh, secure the clean water, clean food, and so forth, the other end is the sick care. But it seems to me that, again, the COVID showed this very clearly, at least in our minds, that uh, the people who are following the public health rules and regulations, and they're benefiting from it on one side, and they're not sick enough to go to the hospital. They haven't had the fire yet. <laughs> what is that structure in the middle uh, that uh, we needed as an organization? Uh, with expertise in health, in health hazard uh, uh, prevention to install, apply, monitor, and actively manage health hazard prevention, both on the individual level and perhaps at the societal level. And then the next question is, who's gonna pay for this? What is the financial support for such an organization uh, is going to be provided? Uh, do we have additional resources that are going to come out of our paychecks that is going to pay for this health guardian agencies? Where I would propose here, uh, and I'm going to ask you uh, your opinions, that uh, the research shows, and we have discovered this, and uh, Bernard elaborated on this earlier, there is a significant waste on the sick care concept. It's like in the fire example, we are spending so many resources in basically after fire issues. Uh, the research shows that there are more than 50% of what is currently done in the sick care system is considered waste, waste that doesn't add anything to this uh, health promotion concept. Uh, and it's a simple analogy that there's enough waste in one part that could be saved uh, to come and build basically the structural uh, organizations we need in terms of the health guardianship. So, um, Bernard, uh, does this fit into your medical education now? Can you, with your uh, very fresh medical education, take this on and uh, see whether we can give our audience a better understanding of this gap, the organizational structure that may basically be born uh, to do this job, and uh, basically after COVID, hopefully we will have 
uh, a, a much better healthcare system that is efficient uh, toward the goals it has? Well, unfortunately, I, in my interim, in my medical education, I know now, I now know enough, and especially given uh, what Aditi just said about uh, incentive alignment, and that's causing very much uh, a lot of efficiency in terms of fire prevention. Um, I know enough about these topics that I understand that the structure of the medical system doesn't really fit right now with this idea of a health guardian. However, I also know that if organizations existed that could fill this role of a health guardian, um, then that could lead to a lot of efficiency, a lot more health in our society. And what I mean by uh, a health guardian, if we were to take the bow tie concept that Aditi just expounded upon, and we were to conceive of this idea of a health guardian, well, um, that entity or that person might look at like a, you know, their, their job description might look like a person that identifies genetic, environmental, lifestyle factors that could be health risks for an individual. And once those are identified, that guardian, that health guardian would apply methods like the bowtie uh, risk management model uh, to reduce or modify those known risks and prevent the health hazards that are ever present from actually occurring. So for example, such a person might um, use these methods to avoid exposure of environmental risk factors, things that might trigger susceptible genetic backgrounds of individuals if they have, say, a genetic uh, susceptibility to diabetes mellitus. Um, they might also apply changes in lifestyle habits or methods of motivating a person to change their lifestyle habits to reduce re uh, diseases related to obesity or diabetes or uh, poor health. Uh, poor healthy foods, um, things like continuous monitoring of biomarkers or other, other uh, evidence of risk factors. In this way, the health guardians would, in a sense, flip the sick care system or the, the method of approaching health inside the sick care system on its head. Instead of looking at the pathophysiology, we look at what prevents the pathophysiology. Uh, if we were to take, say, the idea or the health hazard of diabetes, um, we know there is an abundance of information on what causes type 2 diabetes. Uh, if you have uh, an entire life of poor diet, um, a lot of sugary uh, or carbohydrate-rich uh, foods, that increases the risk. There's a huge uh, genetic susceptibility. So if you have a family history of type 2 diabetes, there's a good chance that you will, like, like I do, uh, develop type 2 diabetes in the future. Um, and what these health guardians would then do is, before the person develops type 2 diabetes, say, me, I'm currently 24 years old. At the age of 24 years old, these health guardians would look at my, my behaviors. Okay, Bernard, you, you consume fast food about three times a week. Well, we need to work on on minimizing this risk factor. That is identification of a risk factor in a person's life. And then the step two of the guardian would be to minimize those. So they would use techniques, things that are just currently being developed, techniques like motivational interviewing, uh, clar clarification of values within a person's life um, lifestyle uh, that leads to these behaviors that are risky. And then they would use these techniques to 
decrease, mitigate those risks. Um, so that's that's something that a health guardian might look like. Um, yeah, it's um, uh, uh, going back to the fire example. As you could see, the difference between health and the fire is there is more generalizability of the fire prevention strategies that could apply. Whereas in human, because each of us are a, really a unique uh, biological entity, uh, there has to be more of an individualized application of those risk mitigation policies. It's like, in this case, every individual is the one building on itself, depending on the construction of the building, whether it's made of a stone or woods or bricks or whatever. Every person has some specific customized risk factors, uh, genetic perhaps, lifestyle, environmental factor, but most of us or all of us also share some level of generalized risk factors in terms of the you know sources of the food and the physical activity. So and I think that is where the distribution between what part of it could be done by public health, what part of it could be done by the basically the health guardian uh, agencies uh, could uh, kind of manifest itself in terms of the more detailed job description and responsibility. Does that make sense to you, Aditi? Yeah, I think you bring up a very good point of more customization when it comes to um, risk factors and conditions. That essentially, to me, sounds like the difference between public health and medicine. Um, and when you think about public health, you're thinking about impact of social goodness, physical wellness, um, on a major scale, on a bigger level that looks into populations and social and behavioral dynamics. However, when you look at medicine, you're talking about an individual. A doctor's not going to be able to treat an entire population at the same time. But public health strategies can help eliminate or reduce risk factors for an entire population. That being said, the role of the health guardian would be to combine the two. It would essentially be to, kind of when we mentioned incentive misalignment, to align those incentives or align those goals together to help, for, for first of all, have an impact on a public health, like public health departments, but also have customization in the role of medicine. So in recognizing the individual factors that contribute to risk within a person, but also kind of scaling those factors up to help impact and prevent major risk factors from happening within an entire population. I think that's essentially what a health guardian would be, or the optimal health guardian's role would be in this risk management model. Yeah. A, a individuals who have the clinical knowledge of the uh, disease, the risk, but uh, that is not enough. Uh, need to know how basically the, uh, the risk medications at the individual, at the group level, Really, it seems that we need uh, and uh, some a new hybrid uh, uh, profession, a, a hybrid profession where it has the clinical information, public health, uh, risk mitigation, understanding, and then, uh, as Bernard mentioned, uh, equipped with uh, uh, motivational uh, skills. You know, we have over the past 20 years the whole. Uh, behavior economics has evolved as a new field of how people make decisions. We all of us are uh, irrational decision makers when it comes to finances and the food and so forth. How all the combination of this really scientific advancement we've made over the past uh, few decades could become uh, uh, 
basically find a house within those uh, structural uh, organizational structures that is we call them the uh, bowtie health guardians uh, and in the reverse orders they're the guardians of health using the bowtie risk management and I think uh, with that, could you imagine if such an attitude that we basically took us uh, from the fire, from the uh, from the cavesman attitude to now we build high-rises buildings that literally amazes you when you go and look at the Sears Tower and has never had a fire. There are hundreds of thousands of people live there. How we have reduced the risk of fire in these mega buildings uh, and uh, who have stood, you know, for decades and so forth. I could imagine that basically this uh, uh, method is applied to the health of a person uh, by the person themselves, bolsters by the expert who have the tools and the systems to identify the risk and eliminate them immediately. And then regulations exist to enforce the application of those uh, preventive measures. I believe that such an approach to health guardianship could lead to a life expectancy of at least 100 years. As you know, we have plenty of examples where people live to their uh, 110, 120 uh, for most human beings uh, who don't have to live during the, those years with chronic conditions, have a full, healthy uh, life for a century. And I think this is a good time for us to wrap this up and really strive uh, to uh, for that goal, uh, that uh, with the implementation of a bowtie health guardianship structure in our healthcare system, uh, we could have a much healthier population, a much more efficient healthcare system uh, after COVID, uh, and uh, uh, have better lives. With that, I'm going to conclude the today's episode, and thank you so much, uh, DT and Bernard, uh, for joining me. Thank you so much. This has uh, been a really awesome discussion to have. I learned a lot from Aditi and from you, Dr. Donishkari, as usual. Um, and I'm really looking forward to further discussion on this topic. And it was wonderful to have you with us, Aditi. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed my time here and I hope I can come back again. <laughs> Absolutely. You're welcome to join us again. Thank you for tuning today's episode. I hope we have inspired you to take a closer look at the missing gaps in our healthcare system. I'm Dr. Donish Geary, and this has been Why Can't We Have It All? Stay safe and be well. You've been listening to Why Can't We Have It All? The Missing Pieces in Our Healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Bowtie Medical. Visit us on the web at www.wcwha.com and send any questions and comments to info at wcwha.com.